You're listening to. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real. With Don Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Hey, lovely listeners. Here we are with another episode. This week's features a wonderful and enlightening interview with Susie Q. We talk all about some uh, legislation that is kind of sweeping across the United States that is anti-porn, anti-sex work. She talks to us about the Prop 60 work that she did in California and her work with the Free Speech Coalition. We talk about why she loves porn so much as a performer, how her parents feel about it, and then we field some listener questions at the end of the hour all about polyamory. Before we get there, though, I just want to remind you This episode is coming out on April 16th, which is Easter Sunday for those of you who observe. And on Monday, April 17th in the evening for U.S. and Canada folks, there is going to be an online PJ party if you are a Patreon supporter of the show. So if you go to patreon.com slash sex gets real and support at any level before the PJ party, you can get access. It's going to be a fun online chat. That's just us kind of shooting the shit and me answering questions and finding out about all of you. And it's going to be casual and laid back and fun. And I would love to have you there. And of course your support helps me to keep doing this work as a sex educator and as a podcaster. And so every single dollar makes a huge difference. I'm also feeling really emotional as I record this because I've just started reading Abandon Me by Melissa Phoebos, which is a memoir. And it is lyrical and moving and the thing that is making me feel so emotional is I feel like she's giving words to so many of the demons that I carry and it feels vulnerable and exposing and magical all at the same time. And so I am hoping to actually get her on the show at some point in the next couple of months because I've reached out to the publisher. So if you're looking for a really um, moving, well-written, gorgeous book, then you might want to check that one out. So let me tell you all about Susie Q and we'll jump into this interview. So Susie got her start in the business dancing at the unionized Lusty Lady Theater in San Francisco and has worked as a performer in adult films since 2012 garnering two AVN award nominations and a feminist porn award. During that time, she has been an unrelenting advocate for the rights of all sex workers. She also spoke at erotic film school when I was there a couple of weeks ago, which was amazing. Susie Q is an author, weekly columnist for SF Weekly, and the creator of The Whorecast. Her first book, Truth, Justice, and the American Whore, which is super fun read, was published last year. And we do a little um, snippet from the book in this interview. 
She joined the Free Speech Coalition, which is the trade association of the adult industry in May of 2016, to help them soundly defeat both Cal OSHA Regulation 5193 and Proposition 60 in California, both of which have put adult film performers at immense risk. She has recently returned to performing in adult films and is excited to continue campaigning for the rights of adult industry workers, specifically through combating the harmful wave of legislation declaring pornography to be a public health crisis, which is where we start the interview. So here we go. Welcome to Sex Gets Real. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. Hey, me too. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just told the listeners all about your work and your bio and all the things that you do from podcasting and weekly columns to working with the Free Speech Coalition and porn. And you do some really incredible things in your life. Thank you. Thank you so much for those kind words. Um yeah. Yeah, I do stay pretty busy <laughs> when you when you put it all when you stack it all up against each other at once. You know, at cocktail parties are awkward. You know, always I think if you work in the adult industry, like, hey, what do you do? Uh, but particular, even if I am fine with telling someone that I do sex work, among other things, uh, the law, the resume that comes out is is a little like awkward. It's like, hey, I'm not, no, I'm not done. There's another comma. But... <laughs> But wait, there's more. <laughs> I kind of just pick one so I don't sound like an asshole, but. Um. <laughs> there's a ton of things that I want us to roll around in today, but I know that you recently actually took a break from filming porn and sex work so that you could just dedicate all of your time to Prop 60 in California, which had a wonderful outcome for the immediacy of that proposition. And we'll talk about that some more. But um, just before we hopped on the recording, we were talking about how so many people were stepping up to the plate and sharing and vocalizing and doing interviews. And there was just this massive movement from the porn and sex work industry to kind of push against this proposition in California. And it was so powerful and moving. And I'd love to hear from you kind of what was it like to be in the center of that and working so hard and bringing all these voices together and just like grassroots campaigning your heart out. That's, that's exactly what it was like. I mean, so the fight against Proposition 60, which really quick for folks who don't know, uh, Proposition 60 was um, a statewide ballot initiative here in California that <clears throat> essentially it was, a, I kept calling it a Trojan horse initiative. I swear to God, I'm about, I'm having PTSD right now. Like <laughs> I'm like making sound bites of Prop 60 for you. <laughs> Is so intensely for you know six six months or more. My entire every time I did a podcast or an interview or a tweet or a phone call or anything, it was like, so what is Prop sixty? Why is it bad? And why should we vote no? So whew, just get back in that. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, so Proposition 60 uh, was a Trojan horse initiative. You know, it purported to be about protecting performers by mandating the use of condoms and barriers in adult films. Uh, You know, condoms are great, right? Health and safety are great. It sounded fabulous, just like so many pieces of legislation around the adult industry usually do. They play off of people's misconceptions and ignorances about uh, the adult industry. And so while... There are plenty of performers who only shoot with condoms. There are plenty of studios that only shoot with condoms. But there are also plenty of performers, myself included, who want another option, that condoms are not the best option. And we want what has been uh, utilized and successful for over a decade in the adult industry, which is the uh, industry-regulated testing protocols, the Performer Availability Screening Service, which uh, is run out of the Free Speech Coalition office that I'm speaking to you from right now. Um, But that allows uh, performers to be tested for seven different STIs every 14 days, you know, ensuring that we, I know my status, I know my partner's status baseline. Uh, so whether we use a condom or not is going to be affected by that knowledge. Uh, so anyway, what Prop 60 would have done is incentivize harassment from any person in the state would be able to file a lawsuit against the performers and producers of any film that didn't showcase a condom in every single frame. So this could have decimated the adult film industry, right? By allowing any person to file a lawsuit and and receive 25% of the damages. We were actually financially incentivizing people to come after a marginalized workforce Getting access to our legal names and home addresses through uh, legal processes that, you know, compromise our privacy. It was really a nightmare. So, but it was very, very difficult to get people to understand why it was a nightmare because it was publicized as health and safety, condoms and adult films. Everyone agrees with that, which is why it was so phenomenal to see the entire adult industry, really, you know, from cam girls to, uh, you know, novel, uh, pleasure products companies to consumers uh, to sexual health organizations really come out, understand that if you're going to uh, make laws about a marginalized population, you have to listen to them. And so we are so grateful that California voters listened to adult film industry workers. Uh, Prop 60 was rejected by 54 out of 58 counties, uh, over a million votes. And especially, I wish that on November, the night of November 8th, we had been able to feel that victory a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, But I was on the floor of uh, Vivid Entertainment in Studio City, you know, sobbing into my Savion Blanc uh, on the floor like a child. (laughs) I was just not with joy, not with joy. It was a... the Trump, the Trump election was was very hard for a lot of our community, um, but Prop, the Prop 60 victory, I think, was the one silver lining. Uh, we were able to say, okay, even in the light of this, you know, fascist, um, you know, predator mm-hmm. in the office, that we've shown that when our community unites and fights around a cause, we win, and yeah. that that's what we've been able to take away from. Uh, the Prop 60 battle, and, and that's, you know, priceless. But it did really feel like uh, living inside Newsies. You know, it was like uniting <laughs> this ragtag bunch of folks and, uh, you know, doing the impossible. It was incredible. It was one of the best things I've ever done. I get, I'm covered in goosebumps from head to toe, just <laughs> listening to you talk. And like, I, I think one of the things that just hits me so hard is, you know, 
you and I know, and, and most of the listeners for the show know it at this point, after all of my preaching about porn, um, you know, that, that most of what we see in the news and in legislation is fear-based and not at all based in science or reality. And to see groups who don't have millions and millions of dollars at their disposal actually banding together and doing these grassroots campaigns and like literal protests and interviews with news organizations all around the world and to come together and have this victory is so fantastic. And then my heart also breaks knowing that this like incredible victory also happened on the same night as so many other just like terrible, terrible losses. Um, cause that kind of takes away from the, the chance to like really, truly just celebrate, but we're, we've, we've definitely as a community been celebrating <laughs> kind of like fits and starts because <laughs> there was not that moment of, uh, you know, victory that we really got to feel. Um, yeah. but Still, those ripples are, um, I think, still, we're still seeing them and we'll continue to see them. Because uh, it was not only that victory, but uh, a couple months prior, when I first signed on to work with the Free Speech Coalition, it was to help with their social media strategy around mobilizing performers to come to this Cal OSHA meeting. Now, Cal OSHA is uh, the, the regulatory body in the state in charge of workplace safety, whether it's a construction site or a medical setting, or a porn set. Um, so a, a, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who were the main sponsors of Proposition 60, Measure B, AB 1576, all of the attacks on the adult industry around mandatory condoms and regulations that are not, that have, that are not drafted with any input from active performers. So those same folks had drafted regulations via Cal OSHA that again, were completely unworkable for our workforce and had not been drafted with our uh, input in any capacity. And what, you know, this is probably if anyone has been following this storyline where you heard about uh, that these regulations would mandate goggles and gloves in every scene we wouldn't be able to see kissing any, anymore because the regulations are actually drafted for an emergency medical setting. And they've been kind of cut and pasted and placed on top of, you know, adult film when, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That's not, that's not the reality that people are, you know, making films and it's not the same as an emergency medical setting. You know, someone's status if you're using the testing protocol. So, so on and so forth. Um, so it was my job to help mobilize performers to come to this Cal OSHA meeting, give testimony and convince the Cal OSHA Standards Board to throw out these regulations and start from scratch and include the voices of the workers at the center of the conversation. And we did that. No one thought that that would happen. No one, that was just, it was, it was nuts. Um, so that happened in February. Prop 60 was defeated in November. Also during that time, we had another big victory with a uh, 2257, which mm. is, I'm not sure if folks, anyone who performs uh, in adult film or new mod new modeling of sex on film of any kind has probably filled out a 2257 form, which, uh, you know, it's, we always want to ensure that the people who are performing in adult films are of legal age, are adults, by adults, for adults. However, 2257 was again, you'll see a pattern here. <laughs> 
right? Drafted without the input of working people in the industry. And so it's full of very intense record keeping components that compromise performer privacy in a huge way. And the Free Speech Coalition has been litigating around the privacy issues of 2257 for almost a decade now. And we had some huge victories in that case also around that same time this year, um, declaring under the Fourth Amendment that key components of 2257 are straight up unconstitutional. Like you can't put that much of a burden on, you can't say that if someone doesn't do a proper job of record keeping or doesn't check a box or dot an I that they are then a child pornographer and should face a mandatory minimum. Like that is an undue burden. That's not, that's not, um, a focused piece of legislation. So big victories this year for the adult film world and the adult industry at large, even as we head into this year and face (laughs) such things. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, um, I, we were talking about how I'm temporarily in Utah and, uh, some of the anti-porn legislation that has been going on here, which of course just has deep roots in um, religious kind of beliefs around pornography and things like that. But, you know, making it illegal to view porn, to mm-hmm. own porn, um, and then these other kind of approaches of actually trying to mandate the way that we work, which are labor issues. Mm-hmm. And just these like multi-pronged attacks that seem to be consistently coming at the adult industry. And, and it just baffles me how time and time and time again, when performers stand up and speak out and say, this is not the truth. This is not my lived reality. People don't want to listen, but to know that the public was willing to hear those messages around like prop 60 and that Cal Osho was willing to actually say, Hey, maybe we should actually talk to the people this impacts. Like that just makes me feel so hopeful. Even as we look ahead under a Trump presidency and, and kind of this very right wing conservative swing that we're seeing, which I'm sure will bring even more attempts at regulation and legislation, but at least now we've seen some like beautiful victories and what it means when everyone kind of stands up and, and when people like you do this like work just so tirelessly and so generously. It was a full like community effort, you know, every single person did their part and that's why it worked, you know, like, you know, the free speech coalition, uh, you know, orchestrated the, the, the attacks, but the soldiers, the people with the boots on the ground, what was everyone in the adult industry, you know, like from consumers to cam girls to huge companies. Um, that's what it took. And that's what it'll take again. Um, you mentioned that you're in Utah. So Utah is where we've seen the full uh, scale of what is coming next, right? So there's a wave of legislation happening uh, across the nation in pretty much all of the 50 states uh, called the Human Trafficking Prevention Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if folks have heard about this, but essentially it's, uh, it's conflating legal pornography and, and making it a scapegoat for many ills in this world, including specifically, you know, human trafficking. Uh, However, the way it attacks that is through mandatory blocks, bans, and filters. So in order to, instead of, you know, drafting legislation that would serve victims by, uh, you know, 
getting them better access to the resources they need, you know, something like that. No, no, no. We're just going to this piece, these pieces of legislation, uh, such as SB one, not, not, not SB 185. That's the one that's like prop 60, but these pieces of legislation in the human trafficking prevention act, uh, mandate that all devices sold within the states that pass these acts have a mandatory block of adult content, which can include, you know, sexual wellness websites, LGBT resources, and you, the consumer, it's on, the onus is on the consumer to opt out of that mandatory filter and pay a $20 fee that goes to the state. Uh, so this is, you know, touching all kinds of issues around free speech, around privacy, uh, taxes, all of these things. And they're using the, again, like Trojan horse of human trafficking to get bipartisan support and public support, but they're not actually doing much to help victims from what I can tell. Uh, So it's a very disingenuous type of attack. Uh, It's coming at us from, like I said, essentially all 50 states. And um, it comes in three waves, three steps of legislation, essentially. The first is to declare porn a public health crisis. So we've seen that go through um, in Florida, in Virginia, uh, what, uh, I'm sorry, Utah as well, of course. And <laughs> the second step is that mandatory block or filter where you have to pay $20 to get out, to get the whole internet. You have to pay, when you buy a device, you have to pay a fee to access the entire internet. And by paying that fee, you're put on a list that sort of implicates you as someone who wants access to child pornography and human trafficking. Fabulous, right? Um, So then the third step, which is SB 185 in Utah, is like Prop 60 on steroids, right? So SB 185 says that anyone who, uh, you know, knowingly shows adult content to a minor can then file charges uh, against the person who distributed that content. So if someone takes a device and shows that and puts pornography on that device, shows it to a minor, then the person who made that pornography is on the hook. That the, the distributor of that content is then liable for, for lawsuits, even though like they had nothing to do other than making the content, had nothing to do with the activity, they are, they are then on the hook. So that's the, the three major steps, and we're seeing those uh, in many states across the country, and that's kind of our, our next big battle that we're going to have to unite and fight against. <laughs> Sorry, not a lot of info. No, it's just like the rage that I feel <laughs> is just oh. like, you know, it's it it just it makes me so angry because it's just like the war on drugs, right? We're we're creating all of these laws based on fear mongering and beliefs that have absolutely no foundation in reality or science. Oh. And as you and I know when we restrict access to information and people are driven into the shame closet, the behaviors become so much more dangerous for everyone involved. And like, just all of this makes me so angry and so disappointed that it's so, that it's so easy to dupe people, right? Because they make it so hard for us to get information into the hands of the public. We don't have comprehensive sex education that mm-hmm. teaches media, media literacy. We don't have um, 
you know, we don't have advertisements on Twitter or Facebook or any social media where people can get any kind of like sex education information or ethical porn access or anything like that. And so getting the information out, you know, it's really the, the burden is so much on marginalized workers and, I'm so glad that the Free Speech Coalition exists and that everyone was so mobilized with Prop 60 so that we can start mobilizing in new ways. And and I think one of the questions that I have for you around this is most of the people listening are not in either sex work or in the adult industry. So they're consumers. And They've heard me talk to lots of people about the importance of ethical consumption, being ethical consumers of sex work and of porn and paying for your porn and paying your performers. So what can the informed consumer do around these issues and specifically this Human Trafficking Prevention Act that is kind of hitting all 50 states? Like what can listeners do to actually have an impact to help us fight this? Absolutely. Um, well, first and foremost, I would say support the work of the Free Speech Coalition. Uh, become a member. That's how you're going to have access to things like our newsletter, which, you know, it's my job to go through and give policy updates about what we're working on, what folks can do to get involved. We have all types of, uh, you know, volunteer efforts during Prop 60. You know, we couldn't have done what we did without the people who showed up to hand out brochures at farmers markets, to, uh, you know, call people on the phone, you know, for, for hours and hours to uh, to mobilize support. We couldn't have done it without those volunteers. So um, becoming a member of the Free Speech Coalition, contributing as you would contribute to the ACLU or other things that, that focus on, you know, the rights and human rights of people that you care about. If you care about people who work in the adult industry and you want to support the rights, the most direct way to do that is through supporting the work of the Free Speech Coalition. Um, so go to freespeechcoalition.com, sign up to be a member. It starts as low if you're a consumer as five bucks a month. Um, if you are a company in the adult industry, uh, there's all kinds of perks and like corporate memberships and that starts at just a hundred bucks a month. So check that out, get involved. That's the best way to like stay dialed into this um, because we're going to be leading the charge against this thing. And we need all hands on deck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I would also say, you know, if you want to dive in there and do a little bit of your, your own grassroots mobilization, uh, go to human traffic. I don't want to give them credit or anything, but go to human trafficking prevention act.com. There's a breakdown of all of the uh, way the, the pieces of legislation state by state, start calling your state representative. You know, telling them you do you don't support this and you don't want you know and speak their language. Talk, like a lot of people don't care about the rights of adult film workers like myself, um, but you know what they do care about is votes. And so saying, hey, I don't want my I don't want the government telling me what parts of the internet. I can access and, uh, you know, making me pay a fee. I'll just buy my computer out of state and you won't get any of the tax revenue. How about that, sir? <laughs> you know, saying things like that, um, you know, getting, getting creative about how we um, attack this, talking about it with your friends. A lot of people don't have any idea that this is happening. Um, you know, talking about it on Twitter, like, hey, did you know that there's a piece of legislation in our state? Because I bet you $100, whatever state you're in, there's or there's a state next to it, or you're in a state that is going to be enacting some type of legislation like this. 
you know, go on Facebook and say, hey guys, did you know that this is happening? Tell your state representative that you don't want this because while it's exciting, you know, with Proposition 60, we convinced millions of people to vote no on this. And with these, we were really looking at hundreds or, or dozens even sometime of, of the people we have to con- convince to vote no on these things because that's, you know, it's a different, uh, it's not a proposition. These are House bills and Senate bills. Uh, but so it's, it's easier in a way and more challenging in a way as well, because reaching those people, figuring out what they need to hear in order to change their vote um, is a little bit, a little bit more difficult, but it's totally possible. It's totally possible. So if you don't mind, I would love to read a little excerpt from your book, Truth, Justice, and the American Whore, because I think it perfectly kind of describes the fear that's creating these bills and these attempts at legislation. And I thought it was so, so beautiful. And it was right at the end of the book. So if it's okay, can I read it and we can like roll around in it a little bit? Sure. I'm like nervous, but yeah. (laughs) No, it's so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. So here's what it says. This world has been built on the backs of women and men who survive by selling sex. We have inspired, fed, comforted, and cared for kings, congressmen, authors, painters, and revolutionaries. And yet we have been relegated to the shadows and the back alleys, told that our powers are harmful, dangerous, and that they must be controlled. But the whores of this world are some of our best and brightest. We are the granddaughters of the witches they couldn't burn. We have the uncanny ability to make men, both rich and poor, open their wallets and dole out bills hand over fist. And to a capitalist, patriarchal society, that power is incredibly dangerous. Harnessing and wielding whore power has the potential to dismantle everything. That is why there are so many laws written to control sex workers. It's because the powers that be are afraid of us, and they should be. We are magnificent, we are powerful, and I believe our time has finally come. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. (laughs) So real. That's I. I stand by those words. Yeah. So hard. Um, Especially as we approach this very strange time in our history. Um, I I do believe our time has come, and I and I I do believe that our workforce historically has played such an important role in this world. I think someone was saying on Twitter the other day, like the amount of nonprofit work that has been funded in some capacity by the adult industry, the number of political movements that have been funded indirectly or directly by adult work and sex work, you know, you really start to dig in there and think about what those implications are. And I don't know, I think you'll come to the same conclusion. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one of the things that so many of us forget too, or we just kind of turn a blind eye to is people have been turning to sex workers for as long as capitalism has been around for the most part. And the same people who have found comfort and healing with sex work have often turned around and then tried to legislate against that because we live in such a sex negative culture. And we are seeing an especially kind of terrible time right now. Um, and I have hope we will kind of swing the other way, but 
you know, we are in a time where it's being celebrated that we are turning our backs on the most marginalized. We are removing resources from the most marginalized. And despite the power that sex workers have, they have historically been some of the most marginalized individuals in the world and people are terrified of the power that they wield. And so I loved that you specifically named that fear because I see so much of that in all of these legal battles that we're seeing that people are trying to kind of put a bow on it and make it seem like they're trying to help sex workers or that they're trying to help human trafficking victims. But what's underneath it is this deep fear of sex and power and bodily autonomy, especially for women and trans folks and people of color. And yeah, it's just this like fascinating disgusting big mix of just like oppression and power all in the same place. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you really push on the, uh, and, and dig into the issue, just like, okay, so why do we criminalize people who sell sex? Why do we do that? What's, what's the deal with that? <laughs> and in these multitudes of ways and, and you dig at it, it's like, well, I mean, sex is magical and powerful and it makes people do things. They're very beholden to it in a way. It's, it's this, you know, it's, it's magic. It's witchcraft in many ways. Uh, and it's not easily, you know, controlled. So trying to control it as much as possible in order, you know, to control the uncontrollable when we see that from, you know, intentions between, you know, like witchcraft and the church, you know, who were witches that were burned? They were women who lived outside the box and had powers that people didn't quite understand. Right. Um, so I don't see that as different as, as so different from what we're experiencing now, you know, like what are cam girls? They are, they are women with magical powers that people don't quite understand. Um, yes. so that, that's why we see, uh, I think the types of attacks that we see, but I, I do think that is changing. I do think it's coming around. Um, some pieces of legislation that we're also working on at the Free Speech Coalition, aside from this, you know, we don't always want to be on the defensive, right? (laughs) We we know attacks are coming. They're going to keep coming. They've been coming, um, you know, since the beginning of time. The Free Speech Coalition has been around for 25 years. You know, we have been... We've been to the Supreme Court. We've won against John Ashcroft. We've, we should be real tired by now, but, you know, Eric and I are, are new young blood. We've only both started uh, early last year so at, with the organization. So, But there's this long history of attacks, and it's not going to stop, probably. I mean, hopefully, eventually, but there's always going to be people coming at us. has been that way for so, so long. So we want to be sure that we're also playing offense instead of just defense all the time. That's how you win. Um, So there's some amazing pieces of legislation, uh, one here in California around HIV decriminalization, uh, decriminalizing people's uh, HIV status. So they're decreasing the stigma so that they can get access to treatment and testing and prevention methods. Um, Also in Hawaii, there are three pieces of decriminalization of sex work uh, legislation that that are on the books for, they won't be decided until January of 2018, but that's happening. They're trying to decriminalize uh, prostitution, which includes lap dance for the lap dances for the record in Hawaii. For some reason, lap dances and prostitution are the exact same thing in Hawaii's eyes. So this would decriminalize 
tons and tons of workers uh, in Hawaii. So we're, we're hoping that that goes through. That's HB 1533. And then there's a couple other adjacent pieces of legislation around that um, that would help people remove prostitution convictions from their records um, in a more expedited fashion. There's also a piece of legislation in New Hampshire that is simply setting up a commission to study uh, sex work and decriminalization efforts, just to study it, just to see. Just like, don't be panic. We're just going to look. <laughs> We're just um, looking. <laughs> you know, that's how legislation works. It goes step by step. You know, you, you can't, uh, you know, go in and expect to accomplish everything with one piece of legislation. So that's what you, why you see things like establish a commission or, you know, conversely on our opponent's side, establish, declare porn a public health crisis. Like that's the first step, which lays the groundwork for the next pieces of things. So we can use that same strategy on our side as well. Like let's set up a commission just to look at what people say about not criminalizing the adult industry. Let's just look at it. And then what's going to be found there? You know, Amnesty International and World Health Organization all say that decriminalizing the adult industry helps people and helps, you know, combat human trafficking. Didn't y'all say you were trying to combat human trafficking? We have some thoughts. We would love to share them with you. Guess what? <laughs> we what? have some data that will show you just how to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, things like, you know, pleasure products restrictions. They're in Alabama, Louisiana, and not anymore Georgia, as of just like a month ago, uh, it was still illegal, or there were different bans on what types of pleasure products you could buy in the state. Uh, that was criminalized, and recently Georgia finally lifted those bans. So, so there is progress. You know, I don't want people to get too, too sad. You know, I think we've, even though the attacks keep coming, like I said, we found that when we unite and we fight, we really do win these impossible battles, but we can totally do it and we're going to keep doing it. Oh, I love that. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, everybody, I will have a link to the Free Speech Coalition on sexgetsreal.com for this episode, including a link to the membership um, sign up so that all of us can make sure that we get the newsletters and we stay abreast of what's happening in all the different states and what's being fought for and what we need to fight against. So awesome. let's all go there and throw some money at the people that are doing this very hard work. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to shift to you. Okay. Um, yeah. At the top of the episode, I shared with everyone that you've had this wonderful weekly column uh, with SF Weekly called The Hornex Store. And a whole bunch of those essays, plus some of your other writing, is in your book, Truth, Justice, and the American Whore. And you chronicle so many of your own stories and experiences and and the journey that you've gone on as someone who's moved through different elements of the sex industry. And I know you took a break mm -hmm. from porn while you were working on Prop 60. And I was so excited to see that you recently um, got back into it. And you did a shoot with Andre Shakti, who we've had on the show and adore. Um, and one of the things you said is that porn is your favorite sex work. And I would love it if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, I would love to. Um, yeah, so it took time, time off to fight Prop 60 because, yeah, I just knew that if I didn't, uh, I wouldn't have a career to, like, return to. So it was, it was all in for about 
eight, about six to eight months, I think. Um, and I recently got back in the game. I've shot three scenes uh, this year, which I know, you know, I'm, I'm full time at the Free Speech Coalition. So I'm realistically, I'm only going to be able to shoot like 12 to maybe 20 uh, movies a year, which is, which is fine. Uh, you know, I, I get to be kind of more selective about what, um, what I shoot moving forward. So I shot a gangbang with kink.com. I, I kind of scrimmaged back in with Andre Shakti. She's a good friend of mine. So we just shot some really basic girl, girl content, um, which exhausted me. Like I was so glad that I started easy because I'm not, I'm not in shape yet. I'm not back, you know, having, Having four orgasms in a day is takes a toll on the body. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'm back. I'm really excited to be there. I love making porn because um, I think I've said this before, but I, I'm a theater nerd by my upbringing. You know, I was raised in a theater. Both my parents are um, in the performing arts world. So that community uh, really, really shaped me growing up. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels to that community in the porn world. Like, I don't know, porn stars in my experience, we're, there's a lot of crossover with like weird theater kids, theater nerds, and, you know, making an adult film doesn't feel that dissimilar from like hanging out backstage and like, you know, there's, there's, and also the nature of adult film, or at least filming the sex of it, even though it's going on film, you have to go with the the flow of the day. You know, you have to get that shot. You have, you know, it only happens kind of once. And in the same way that live theater, you know, you have to nail it on stage in front of everyone. Um, in the same way with sex, you know, you can fake a money shot, and there are all these other like ways that you can uh, add movie magic to to a porn shoot. But I like it because it feels a little bit like live performance. Um, and that is where my heart lives. But it's live performance, but sexy and there's sex, which I don't know. When I was um, an artist, I, I got my degree in theater and I was always interested in the edgy, weird, sexy performance art. You know, I discovered, <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> so if I wasn't doing sex work or porn of some capacity, I would be making like really awkward performance art that involved like way too much sexuality it's like this girl needs to examine some things i don't know i don't want to go back to this <laughs> so i'm glad i'm doing this instead you know it's really interesting i was telling the listeners after i came back from erotic film school all mm. about it and we filmed andre and james darling that day nice how did that and go it was so fun and they were so incredible and so patient with all of us newbies who were struggling to like get the camera just right and figure out you know which where the lighting was and they were just like so beautifully yeah professional and patient with us <laughs> and uh, but it what what fascinated me was you know i've been to play parties and dungeons and things like that and seen right. all kinds of sex but what what fascinated me was to be in the room with andre and james while they were having sex was not a new feeling for me but what was new was what I observed in the room with kind of the crew there and them performing and then what translated on the camera and mm -hmm. how much more intimate it was when the camera took away 
all of the noise and it was just Andre and James there. It was, it was incredible to kind of see how these lived experiences get translated by the camera and tell a slightly different story. And I just like that hooked me immediately. I was like, Oh my God, it was just like beautiful and something that hadn't really occurred to me before. And, and it's a space I'd like to be in a lot more, but it was, it was such a fun experience. And, and I love knowing that you love doing this work. Like that just makes me so happy because then we know when we see you performing that you're like, this job's awesome. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. P- porn is really special. I I'm not, there's a little bit, it's capturing sex magic, right? You know, um, I've all, I also really love, I have had the opportunity to do some like live sex performances as well, which is really fun, but you don't have what you just talked about that intimate, that intimacy of getting really close and, and sex is, you know, generally an intimate, really intimate act. Uh, so getting to, and the strange thing about, uh, sex on film is that, you're playing to a different audience than if you're just having sex with someone, right? If I'm having sex with you, like I'm looking at you and everything I do is for your view. But if you and I are having sex for the camera, everything that we do is focused out, is cheated out to a third party to tell a story, right? Um, So that's like a very subtle difference in terms of like performance. Like, well, how is sex different from, you know, how sex on film different from sex you have in your personal life. It's just like, well, the sex I have in my personal life is for a different audience. It's the same way that you and I are having a conversation right now. It's probably a little bit different than a conversation you and I would just have over the phone because we don't, we know that no one's going to be like listening to it. Right. But we know that someone's going to listen to this podcast. So we're doing it a little differently. Right. Yes. (laughs) I love that you put it that way. That's the, um, I think sometimes I struggle when I'm talking to people who are new to sex positivity and ethical pornography and, and, um, being ethical consumers of sex work to kind of describe some of those subtle differences. And I, I adore how you just put that. Cause it's just so simple and clear and it makes total sense to even someone who's really new to kind of thinking these about these things in a different way. Yeah. It's like, I try to, as much as I can, um, one of my favorite essays in the book is around, uh, thinking about other things that we pay for that are very intimate, that are not criminalized in the way sex work is like, I don't know, Brazilian waxes. Like, come on guys. (laughs) I pay someone to do that every month. Like, really? This is okay. This is legal. Okay. Just checking. (laughs) Um, you know, and when we think about, okay, what is the actual action happening as opposed to what are, is our historical shame around the action happening? (laughs) What is, what work is being done as opposed to our puritanical nonsense about the work that's being done? Really trying to parse that stuff out, I think is, um, is crucial to our understanding, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think too, people often assume that, that there's just kind of this like built in shame around being any kind of sex worker, whether it's, I mean, we have all these cultural stories that are just so toxic about the types of people that are strippers, the types of people that are porn performers. And it's this very kind of like one note oversimplified, narrow view that kind of casts a light across the entire industry. And part of that is, kind of showing like, no, I don't have shame about this. It's something I actually enjoy and grow from and have friends, you know, in the industry that I am in. And, and 
and even like you write about your mom and the way that she talks about your work. And you had this really cute article about polyamory and pets. And <laughs> your mom said something like cats and what you do are the reason the internet exists. And, and like, I, even yep. that just like subtle, tiny little thing of saying like, Hey, look, my mom knows what I do and like talks about it right. completely removes that shame, that kind of like puritanical values slant to this. And I love that so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, shout out to my parents. They're the best in the world. I'm so obsessed with them every day. They, they're amazing. They're, they're the folks who just like, you know, Hey mom, I just got back from from college and going on tour with rock and roll bands. I'm going to move in with you for a second. And will you help me make a mermaid costume? I just feel like I need to perform as a mermaid on stage. And by the way, I became a stripper. That's cool, right? Love you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the folks who put up with that are, deserve all the gold medals. They're like, hey guys, I swear that me being a sex worker is, is going to result in something real cool. And like me having like some kind of like office job and title someday. I promise. They're like, okay. And, but they trusted me and, and here we are. Um, right. But to that end about, uh, you know, decreasing the stigma, like sure, there's a lot of stigma on um, the people who make this content or participate in this industry. Sure, right? But there's also a huge stigma around people who consume it. So when we think about how, like, listeners, for example, to the podcast can um, help out with the cause of fighting for the rights of people who work in the adult industry, come out about your consumption of it. Come out as a consumer. Like, I watch porn. It's awesome. What sites do you subscribe to? Like, I, would, I got a happy ending massage the other day. It was great, you know, or like whatever, you know, talk about, I find that that, that not talking about um, the ways in which we all consume sex in some capacity. Like, have you looked at some dirty photos on Tumblr? Have you watched a porn? Have you gone to a strip club? Have you gone to Hooters? You know, think about the ways in which you yourself consume sex and be open about those things in your community. That's going to do a huge amount to dismantle the shame that we all live with around sex in this, in this country and in this world, I think. Oh, I love that call to action. That's something that's so simple and also so edgy for a lot of people who maybe don't talk about sex very often in their, in their lives the way that you and I do. But even to just admit that, you know, you went to a strip club with a bachelor party or that, like you said, you went to Hooters or um, the sites that you subscribe to or that you flirted with your spouse using these super sexy Tumblr pics that you found. Like that's a really low barrier to entry totally. to actually reducing stigma and kind of having a little bit of an activist approach. Yeah. And even if you're not like totally comfortable talking about your own consumption, coming out as an ally around consumption or work is really important. Like, hey, yeah. Dead hooker jokes are never funny. Let me tell you why. Because sex workers are disproportionately affected by violence and murder. So maybe you should think twice before you say that at the water cooler, Bob. You know? Yes. That kind of um, intervention and disruption of those narratives is really important for us. Oh, I totally agree. And I can't wait for everyone to listen and just like fist pump in the air. <laughs> no, it's, um, you know... Sometimes I wish that I, the only times I think I wish that I wasn't a sex worker is to be more emboldened in situations like that. Um, I'm pretty good, you know, I'm pretty good at like Uber drivers or just random folks being like saying stupid stuff about the adult industry and combating it in a way that is non-combative um, and educating, you know, a teaching moment. I'm pretty good at that. It's actually my job. Um, but 
sometimes when I'm out in the world, you know, I'm still a sex worker at the end of the day. And like that stuff, I feel it, you know, I find that in my activism, even with Prop 60, I think that if I were to go back in time somehow and do the Prop 60 campaign start to finish again, I would, I would, or just even watch myself doing the Prop 60 campaign with everyone. I think I, I would see in myself and then also with everyone who worked on the campaign, all these tiny ways in which we made choices that were affected by our own internalized shame around this stuff. I know that that's true. And so even as we're fighting these battles, I'm also, I think we're all fighting these like internal battles as well. And so keeping in mind that we need our allies, we need the people who, you know, come at this a little bit differently and are able to, to be that fierce in that instance and be like, Hey, you know what? Don't talk about my friend like that. (laughs) We need that. So please do that. Um, It's so moving and so real and so approachable and easy for so many of us to do who aren't at risk, who, who aren't risking our bodily safety and our livelihoods when we can use our voice and actually call those folks out. Um, So I love that. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. No, you go ahead, please, please. Well, I was just wondering if we should dive into a listener question or two. That's what I was wondering too. (laughs) Oh my gosh, mind meld. Okay. Well, um, (laughs) I know that you have written at length in your column and in the book, uh, and you talked about this in your life as being someone who is polyamorous and um, has multiple partners. And so I have a couple of questions actually from people who are struggling um, in their poly quest. And I thought maybe the two of us could kind of roll around in them and see where we end up. I would love that. Okay. So this first one comes from someone named A and it says, hi, Dawn. First, thank you for your show. I love it. And I've learned so much. I've written to you before under a different name, but this time I have a question that I could really use your help with. I'm a cis woman in my mid-20s, and I identify as polyamorous and bisexual. I have an amazing relationship with my primary partner, who is a cis straight man in his late 40s. I also now now have an amazing secondary relationship with a man I met online, as well as a couple of occasional fuck buddies at varying degrees of distance. As an abuse survivor, it means the world to me to be surrounded by these wonderful people who love me and are kind and supportive to me. Unfortunately, my primary partner is struggling to find another partner of his own. He's had a couple of false starts, but nothing lasting, and it's making him really sad. I've tried everything I can think of to help, including offering to step back from my own external relationships to make it easier on him but he refuses this offer every time on the grounds that it wouldn't be ethical and would cause bigger problems down the road. He supports my other relationships generally, but is really struggling with the reality of them at the moment due to his understandable envy and not having something similar for himself. I just don't understand why this sweet, funny, smart, sexy man isn't overrun with offers for dates. Surely other women must see in him what I do, So how do I help my partner find a partner? How do I support him in the meantime? And how do I keep my own relationships going in a way that doesn't damage my primary relationship or make me feel unbearably guilty? Woo! Yeah. Yeah. 
Darn, that's a lot. But not not uncommon, I would say. You know, this is not a story that I haven't heard before. Right? Yeah. Not, And I know that as, I think, a non-monogamous person, uh, sometimes you can really feel like, that. oh, God, no one has ever done this before. No one is having this problem. Why can't I do this right? You know, um, it's such a big leap to take that step and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do monogamy, which is the like general thing that is expected of me. Um, but I'm going to think outside the box and do a non-traditional relationship structure. That takes a lot of bravery and, you know, dealing with people's ignorances, you know, puts you in the closet sometimes or requires you to come out of the closet, you know, depending on what you choose to do. So, um, I understand that like it can feel daunting, but I I want the person who wrote, wrote this to understand that like they are going through some super, super regular poly issues, I would say. Lots of people have been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I remember when I was first when I was first discovering sort of the realities of my polyamorous affiliation. I guess I was in college and I had just read The Ethical Slut, and my LGBT advisor person, who was so lovely to me, you know, I would sit there and just like cry in her office, um, and she would say, "Sweetie, I promise you, like I, I was you. I understand what this feels like, but." Fast forward several years in your life, like right now, the only people I know are polyamorous. Like every person in my circle is non-monogamous. And I was like, how could that be possible? You're lying. You're lying. And like, that's absolutely my existence now, you know? So (laughs) it takes some time. Um, I would say with this person, I mean, this sounds, this may be a little crass, but like, have you considered threesomes? Is that weird? Is that my bad? No, not at all. You know what I mean? It's like if your partner, if your honey is having trouble meeting folks, which let's say, okay, wow, you're you're a bisexual, like twenty something year old, and you're dating a you know cis straight forty year old guy. Like, shocking that you're having more success getting partners than he is. Shocking. Like, of course you are. Of course. Like that's that's you know not to be that's not wildly insane. Um, so like, how do you mitigate that? How do you meet your partner where they're at? Like be his, I would recommend being his wingman, you know, going cruising together, putting up some ads as a couple, if you guys are into that, if y'all are into that. Um, but yeah, that's one of them. What would you say, Dawn? Well, I really like your suggestion of threesomes. Um, and I think even to take that a step further, like if that's something the two of you are willing to do together, you know, play parties and dungeons and just going out together to places where you can have sexual experiences with other people and also be kind of supporting and nurturing that primary relationship at the same time so that her partner feels like he's having, having an opportunity to actually, you know, experience other people and other situations and other bodies, even if he doesn't have kind of a long-term committed secondary relationship right now, that at least kind of opens the door up to new people, um, new friends, new connections that might lead then to dating and things like that. Exactly. And yeah, especially because she says she identifies as bisexual, you know? So if you guys can cruise for ladies together, I mean, that's a fun thing to do with partners, in my experience. Um, doesn't work for everyone, for sure. Um, and also, you know, you never necessarily want to be that unicorn hunting cliche couple. Just like, hi, do you- 
girl we met at a party, would you like to have sex with my husband? Like, maybe not lead with that, but, you know, <laughs> yep. you know, ethically cruising together and, you know, being transparent about where you guys are at. Like, hey, we're a cute couple. I'm bisexual. My dance card's a little full right now. Like, he's open to having, you know, a more serious relationship. I would be down to do some threesomes. Like, what? what is everyone available for? That's That's how I would approach it. But yeah, I'm also wondering, I know this is super location dependent and that access to these things is very, very dependent on city and state. But if there are poly or non-monogamy meetups in your area or kink munches where there's just an opportunity to even talk to people who are in similar situations. So even if it doesn't lead to dating, it just feels less isolating for both of you. Totally. To be able to share about those experiences. And and I also think you're so right. Like, I can't tell you how many stories and articles I've read in various forums and places of, you know, and I'm not saying this is their situation, but of a guy who comes and says, hey, girlfriend, like, I've been reading about this poly thing and I want to fuck lots of women, so let's open it up. And then he finds that as a cis straight man in his thirties or forties, he's having a lot more trouble meeting partners. Whereas his cis female partner is having lots of dating opportunities. And I think that's just something you kind of have to know that it might take a little bit more time, especially depending on where you're at and how big the community is and how aware people are in your communities around non-monogamy and poly even being an option. Like for some people, I think it can be a really, really slow start. But then I think once you start meeting people and connecting with people, you, you can have very transformative experiences, but it sounds like he's just having a little bit of a slower start to her kind of like, woo, I'm in it and I found a partner. And of course that feels terrible and lonely and left out. And so, yeah, I think like community playing together and just continuing to like ask about his experience and his feelings to show that you're invested in supporting him, even when shit gets hard, because shit's going to get hard for different reasons. I think is also going to build resilience and in, in connection. Absolutely. And like, also, I'm just going to say it like, this is a great instance. If sex work is in the budget, that could be a, a quick solve as well. You know, if he's not getting his like sexual needs, needs met, uh, you know, if, that's something that you all want to want to broach, like having him like engage in some type of, you know, sex work, not engage, but um, consume some type of sex work, be it cam girls, porn, escorting, whatever. Um, that could be a, a quick a solve for this as well, just to kind of like get some, some practice and get uh, some, you know, your legs around what it looks like to, okay, I'm going to go have this intimate experience with someone that's not you. And then I'm going to come home and we're going to move on with our lives and see how that feels. Right. Um, to get that experience on his side, like maybe consider seeing a sex worker, I would also say. Um, and if I can just be like a little bit of a jerk for a second too, like girl to girl, like don't let him whine too much about having a polyamorous bisexual 24 year old girlfriend and not giving <laughs> what he needs right now. Cause that, I'm just going to say that. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna... <laughs> he has you and that's amazing. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, no like how can we help you get laid more like he's fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that scheme of things. things everything i said also true and a little bit of like yeah you're fine, I'm fine. 
<laughs> uh, one other thought that I had too is if money is in the budget, because I love that you recommended sex work as an option for yes. just like exploring new sexual experiences and people. And I love that. Um, there's also more and more polyamory conferences happening. Mm, yes. um, there's one in Dallas in July, I think. There's one in Philadelphia. There's one that I've seen happen in Berkeley. There's one in Europe um, called the Non Monogamies Conference. And so, like, that might also just be a really great place to meet movers and shakers and people who are really invested in exploring and learning and growing in polyamory versus kind of those, um, well, I guess I could try it, folks, that you're going to meet on OkCupid, who, you know, might be lovely people, but anytime you bring in a newbie who hasn't done this before, there's a new learning curve that you have to kind of fold in. So, gosh, yes, that is a huge, like, components like if you guys are new at this try to find folks who aren't mm-hmm. you know that's that's really good advice i'd say too um and there are like i think vacations you know there are vacations and like retreats and stuff for non-monogamous couples that can edge towards like the swinger scene which may work for you guys like swinger swinging has been a great scene for people for generations now you know so um there maybe taking if you guys live in a small town or have a small insta community or there's not a big poly community where you are like go on vacation together go on one of those like cruises that has a bdsm dungeon in it or or whatever you know get creative about um you know making some intentional time and space to carve out and, and meet those goals i would also maybe say i love that Well, to A, who wrote in, I hope all of that is helpful. And if nothing else, just gives you some nice, juicy things to talk about your partner with and to kind of roll around in together and get creative and see what you can make happen. And I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you so much for writing in. Yay. So Susie, I have one question for you. We are right at an hour and I want to respect your time. So I want to ask you, do you want to field one more question about crushes or should we wrap up? I always want to talk about crushes. Let's do one more question and then I should get back on making sure you can also have porn in the world. Yay. Okay. So we'll talk about crushes and then Susie will save porn. Um, Okay. So Julia wrote in and it says, dear Dawn, I love the podcast. Thanks for all the amazing work you do. I'm hoping you can help me with a question about crushing. I'm in a long-term monogamous relationship with an amazing woman. Our relationship is great and I love her like crazy. Monogamy has always been a negotiable thing and we're both open to talking about it if one of us wants to change that. My question is about whether or not I should tell my partner about my crush on a really good friend. It's not necessarily that I want to date him or sleep with him. I'm not sure that would be a great idea for a variety of reasons. And right now I'm just enjoying the pleasure of crushing on someone. However, I'm very attracted to him, both emotionally and physically, and I wonder if it's a mistake to keep my feelings from my partner. Despite the open invitation to talk about non-monogamy, I'm worried that if I tell my partner about my crush, she'll be hurt, upset, or jealous. I'm sure our relationship would survive, but I'm afraid that if she has a bad reaction, it could negatively affect my friendship with this other person. What if she starts feeling jealous when we hang out? What if she wants me to stop hanging out with him entirely? He's one of my closest friends. My partner is my top priority, but I don't make good friends easily. And it's really rare for me to become this close to someone. 
So does my partner need to know about crush feelings I'm not acting on? Or is this not need to know information? I love my partner and I want to do right by her, but it would crush me to lose this friendship. I could really use some advice. Julia. Oh, Julia. I'm so glad we took this question. I'm so glad we took this question. Um, I ha- was you when I was crying in my friend in my LGBT student advisor's office, having read the ethical slut. I was Julia. Um, so I, this question definitely resonates with me. Um, yeah, I always was interested in non-monogamy. Like as soon as I started, uh, you know, having relationships and intimacy with people in high school I was you know sleeping with my girlfriends and you know had a boyfriend or whatever I was it was very and and, you know had crushes on rock stars that I was trying to you know court and things like that I've always been how I am right um but I got to college and I had my first really serious relationship with a woman um and and she wanted monogamy like she was from a small town um she kind of only recently came out. She had a much more like traditional upbringing than I. Uh, so I, you know, she was, she was an 18 year old cheerleader. You know, I did what I had to do. Um, and so I, we, t- we dated for several years in my, when I was, you know, a sophomore in college. And uh, I met who, this person who uh, would grow to be my playwriting partner. So we made a play called Fish Girl that did a run in New York a couple years ago. And we'll hopefully be doing a run in, in Los Angeles soon. Um, but we we met during you know theater and we worked together and we had this very intimate connection around creation. And for anyone who's done like creative collaboration or business collaboration with another person, it's very very intimate. And it's almost as hard to find a match there as it is to find a match romantically, right? Um, so when I found that match, when I met Sean, I had such a crush on him. We were doing these, uh, things on stage together that were very intimate. You know, we were kissing on stage as part of, you know, theater life and we were creating these things and I was in such a tizzy about it. I didn't know what to do. Um, and I did, I think, end up telling my partner about it because I was like, oh, I'm looking at these feelings and I guess this is what really potentially loving two people looks like. And he had a girlfriend too. I was not interested in having sex with him really, you know, like it wasn't about that. Um, but I came forward to my partner because it felt like the right thing to do, especially since we, I don't think she and I were as explicit about like, Oh, maybe non-monogamy someday as Julia and her partner seem to have been. Um, however, you know, my partner and I had, were pretty open sexually, you know, we had a healthy, somewhat kinky sex life. So I, you know, I brought it up one day. I remember we were sitting at the food court in the mall. And I was like, I want to talk to you about something. I think I have, you know, feelings for Sean. I don't want to cheat on you or be with him or anything, but I'm discovering these things and I want to be open with you about this crush that I'm having, blah, blah, blah. And it went terribly. No. <laughs> Terrible. She hated, I mean, we eventually broke up. We weren't supposed to be together. She wanted a white picket fence and like me to get pregnant as soon as possible. You know, like it's not, she's an accountant now. Like we were not, (laughs) we were not on the same path. So looking back on that experience, I still kind of stand by what I did. I think that telling your partner as soon as possible, I think talking about crushes is really great way to ease into any type of non-monogamy, be it swinging or full-on polyamory. Um, talking about those feelings before anything else happens, I think is really crucial. So 
I, I would say that, you, yeah, definitely, t- especially like if you're already having this crush go, go forward, the longer you wait, the more time I think your partner might see you as, as having deceived her. But like you had these feelings and you guys have continued to like hang out or, you know, be in plays together, whatever your own situation is, um, that okay, when you finally tell her, she's going to be like, okay, so this whole time you've been hanging out with this person and and harboring these crush feelings, have you been acting on them? Like that calls into all kinds of like mistrust. So I think telling your partner the sooner the better is the best call, but also be prepared that this could be the deal breaker. You know, it's all fine and good to talk about ethical non-monogamy and um, the part, the, you know, the possibilities of it, but this is the first sort of step to make it real. And if you can't have a conversation about a crush that goes well, nothing else is going to go well in my experience. I love what you said about, (laughs) we need to talk about these things before they happen because so many of the emails and the questions that I get are something has happened and now I don't know what to do. And, you know, I, I have certainly been in this place and I'm still in this place in so many places where it's really hard to bring things up that feel scary or edgy or like really unsure around. But, you know, if you were able to have this kind of theoretical conversation around crutches before you ever had a crush, it would have laid this really beautiful foundation for then having the conversation. So to everybody listening, like, do that work now before you get to a place where you are similar to Julia. I also think what Julia is talking about is something that's just very sweet and innocent and feels good. And I think that being able to talk just generally about crushes and even asking her partner, like, Hey, have you ever found yourself like crushing on like that cute barista at Starbucks or like crushing on somebody at work and, um, and just kind of ask about your partner's experience as a way to open that conversation. And then I think you're so right. Like the longer you go without saying something, the more it becomes a betrayal and a place where you don't seem trustworthy. Um, and so the sooner you can kind of say like, I so rarely make friends And I'm super loving my time that I spend with this person. And like, I get little butterflies of excitement and I just love the energy that we have. And I want to share that with you. And like, I'd love to know if you've ever had that feeling about somebody else. That's a much different thing than I've been crushing on this person for two years and something's changed and now I want to do more. And it feels like, holy shit, I'm not ready for that. We never discussed this. And then things, I think, potentially spin out of control a heck of a lot faster. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Oh, and, and I will say this as well. Um, you know, having been in a lot of different kinds of relationships, I think that for me, um, and this may be true of other people, women only relationships, my relationships I've had with other women have been so much more about the emotional intimacy than the physical intimacy. So even if you don't want to like have, have sex with this person at all, maybe even you still need to treat it as if, you know, you want to do emotional intimacy with this person. You are starting to, it sounds like. So being transparent about that with your partner, I think is really critical, especially I think in lesbian relationships, because our, in my experience, my relationships with women have been largely about the emotional intimacy more than the physical intimacy. So honoring that and 
planning accordingly, I think is really important. Something that I would like to do in the future in any case. <sighs> <laughs> Life lessons, girl. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I talk a lot about polyamory and like non-monogamy and I've had a lot of experience. I still identify as like the worst girlfriend in America on a regular basis. So like by no means do I have any of this truly concretely figured out. None of us do. You know, we're all yeah. learning. Yeah, it makes me feel so much better that you say that too, because like there are some things I'm really good at with my husband and there's some things that I'm really terrible and feel super insecure around. And so I always love it when I hear other people who share their stories and give advice, say like, I'm still figuring this stuff out because it's so permission granting to everybody listening and also to me. Like I love knowing, okay, I'm not the only one that's still trying to figure this shit out and fucking it up regularly. (laughs) It's re- I think that's a really important thing to realize as you approach non-monogamy, that there's no right way to do it, that just it's not a savior to any time. I definitely thought for a long time that just by being polyamorous meant that I never had to break up with anyone ever again. That's definitely not true. And I have been terrible about that in the past. You know, I hate confrontation. And so like recognizing your own frailties and how, you know, just like any monogamous relationship, like Dan Savage says, every polyamorous relationship you have will fail until one doesn't or many don't same rules same rules i love that well (laughs) julia thank you so much for writing to us about your crush i hope that you find language yeah exactly like i hope you find language that feels good and open and connecting and and that it's not something that turns into a point of pain and struggle but even if it does i hope that you to find a way through that and thank you Susie, for all of your wisdom and your great advice i can't wait for everyone to hear it i'm excited too thank you so much for asking me it's not every day that i get to do the advice thing so i'm always excited when i get to Well, I would love it if you could share with everyone how they can stay in touch with you and follow along with all your adventures. Absolutely. Um, So like I said, go to freespeechcoalition.com, sign up, become a member, support our work. Um, That way you can get our newsletter and find out how to take action and stay involved and also get updates on all the craziness and hopefulness that's happening in the world. You can always also find me at thewhorecast.com. That's where I put out a weekly podcast about the adult industry and the people who work within it. Um, You can also read me every week. uh, My column for the San Francisco Weekly is the whore next door you can find me on twitter at whorecast at susie q james and also the free speech coalition at fsc army and i think that's oh and also on instagram uh the real whore next door and i'm on facebook as well you can search free speech coalition to find facebook it's probably the easiest yay (laughs) well i will have all of those links and more on the episode page on sexgetsreal.com so that everyone can just click and follow along on all the different platforms. I want to thank you so much for being here and doing this with me. It was so fun. So fun. Thank you so much, Dawn. This was a fabulous part of my day. I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, that feels so good. And to everybody who listened, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to head to sexgetsreal.com so that you can follow along, get all those links. And also, if you have any questions or stories you'd like to share, you can do that there as well. So until next week, I'm Dawn Sarah. Bye. <laughs>